Well, today we're back in the letter to Philippians that the Apostle Paul has written. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me back to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to spend today looking at the first four verses of this chapter. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Apostle Paul begins this section of his letter with this word, so. Or, in other translations, the word therefore. In other words, this passage that we're going to look at is tied to the previous passage. He's carrying on the idea that he began previously. And so it's important as we get into this to understand what the idea is that he's getting at. And if we uh, go back, we find this idea, that the central idea to this whole section that Paul is writing in verse 27, where he writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, if you're here last week, you know that we talked about uh, Paul writing to this church in Philippi about how they were to act under pressure. Pressure from the world around them to conform to all of the ways of the world. And his answer was this, only let your life, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then Paul laid out for the church in Philippi and by extension for us, how it is that we ought to live when the world puts pressure on us from the outside. And we're to stand firm. We're, we're to strive together side by side in community for the sake of the gospel in the place that God has called us to. And we're not to fear. We're not to be afraid of those who oppose us. That's how it is that we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But now Paul is going to carry on this idea. And now rather than talking about the threats to the church from outside the church, now he's going to look at the threats to the church from inside. And one of the key threats, one of the primary threats that the church faces is that of division and disunity. And the fact of the matter is, in some cases, that's even more threatening, more dangerous than from the outside. And you know the church, we have this long history of disunity. There are over 33,000 different denominations just within the evangelical world. Uh, maybe by some studies uh, more, other studies say less, but regardless of what it is, a lot of division there. And uh, even uh, though there's denominations, there's also this sort of growing tribalism. Uh, even denominationism is kind of on the decline, but there's this, this sense of tribalism between churches that even if you're different denominations, you hold to this particular theological position or that. In some ways, it's the new denominationalism. And even within those individual tribes or those denominations, there's churches that split with regularity. I mean, they split over questions of doctrine or vision or style or money or control uh, or power. I mean, there's just churches that, that, that split for all sorts of reasons. And in fact, this year has been particularly hard on churches because some of them have split over the whole question of how to respond to COVID, whether they should have masks or not masks, whether they should meet right away or, or wait. And, and especially in the States, there's been the added pressure of this politics that has seeped into the church and is distracting from the message of the gospel. Paul says to us that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means to live in unity with one another. And so now in this section that we're going to look at today, he's going to explain what that looks like. He's going to give us instructions for how to seek unity uh, among two groups. There's two groups that we have a tendency to have misunity with or disunity with. Uh, one is those who are so different than us, and the other is those who are really similar to us. So really, 
the danger is that we have divisions and, and disunity with everybody. But he's going to start with those who are so different. Here's what he says, verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Here's what he says. He says to the church in Philippi, he says to us, he starts this way, is there any encouragement in Christ? In other words, has God, has Christ done a profound work in your life? Has he saved you? Has he given you purpose and meaning and direction in your life? And then he says, is there any comfort from love? That's love from God the Father. That, have you experienced the comfort of knowing that God loves you? That he cares deeply so much that he sent his own son? And then he says, is there any participation in the Spirit? In other words, is the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Is he changing you and transforming you? He says, if that's the case, if, if Christ is at work in your life and you know the love of God and the Spirit is changing you and transforming you, then he goes on to say this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. In other words, if God is at work in your life, then you should have unity with one another. You know, I grew up in a church in Calgary, a small church. There's like about 120 of us in that church, babies included. And I sat every Sunday about six rows back with my buddies on the right-hand side of the church. And behind me every single Sunday sat Art McElroy and his wife and their kids. Now, Art McElroy was a short guy. He's like five foot three or something, a really short guy. But he was tough as nails. He was a farmer. He's a very successful farmer. He had a massive farm, innovative, really, uh, you know, really amazing farmer. And he and his wife, I mean, they're having babies like it was going out of style. They had five babies. Then by the time they finally stopped, they had nine babies. So, I mean, they, they were, I mean, they were just having lots of babies. And, um, and he was the kind of guy who wore a three-piece suit to church every Sunday. Suit, tie, the whole thing. I remember one Sunday he came wearing his suit and his tie. And, uh, and our, our church was in the city. Uh, but uh, somebody else had come from out of town and they'd noticed that one of the irrigation pipes on his field had broken open and water was just pouring out onto his field. And they told him that. And as service began, I saw him get up and just quietly leave through at the back of the, the church. And when service ended, he came back in wearing his suit and tie. I said, Art, where'd you go? He said, I had to go fix the leak in my field. He said, I drove out to the field. I looked at the leak. I took off my jacket and my shirt. And my pants and my shoes, I stripped down to my underwear. I climbed over the barbed wire fence, slogged through the mud, put the cap on the end of the pipe, went back. Somehow he got the mud off him, put on his three-piece suit and tie, came back to church. He's quite the guy. And the other thing about Art is that he couldn't sing if his life depended on it. I mean, he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And he sat right behind me and he belted the songs out at the top of his lungs. And he'd always smile. He'd say, hey. Hey, the Bible doesn't say sing on tune. It just says make a joyful noise. And that's what I'm doing. I'm making a joyful noise. And he was quite a guy. But see, here's the thing. Art McElroy and Jonathan Newfeld, farmer, family, successful career, teenage boy, skinny, doesn't have a clue what he's doing. Nothing in common. Nothing except this. That Jesus had come into our lives and was giving us life and hope and purpose. And that we knew the love of God the Father in our life and the Holy Spirit was at work in our lives. And because of that, we who were so far apart could walk in unity with one another. And, and this is where the Apostle Paul starts. He says, look, in all the differences of the people that are in the church, unity flows, he says, first of all, uh, 
Uh, unity flows out of a common faith. And I've said this before a number of times in our church, but I'll say it again. You know, in our church, there are people from such different backgrounds, di different experiences, different political persuasions, those who voted NDP and those who voted liberal and those who voted conservative. And people from different educational backgrounds and different socioeconomic levels and, and different stages of life and different hobbies and different interests. I mean, so very different. But what we have in common, the basis of our unity is the fact that God is at work in our life in changing and transforming us. And that becomes the foundation on which we build and walk in unity before the Lord our God. That's the first thing. But then if you notice in this verse, uh, there's, a, there's a second thing that he says. He adds these two words. If there's any affection and sympathy. Now, when the Apostle Paul uh, talks about affection, he's simply saying this. Do you like the people that you go to church with? I mean, is there a warmth towards them, even though they're so different? You know, Art McElroy, he's so different. I like that guy. He's a good guy. And you know why? This guy who's having all these kids so busy, he took an interest in me. And we developed a, a genuine relationship. And out of that flowed this, this kind of affection towards one another. And it's necessary if we're going to walk together in unity. In fact, we need to have those kinds of relationships, not with everyone. In a big church, it's too hard to have that kind of relationship with everyone. But definitely with a number of different people, we've got to have that, that warmth and that affection. You know, I once served on a leadership board made up of good guys, really good guys. But the fact of the matter is that they didn't really know each other with that kind of warmth and affection. They, they, they knew each other generally, but in fact, they didn't even know the, the names of some of each other's wives. So it was just sort of a general knowledge that they had, which was fine when everything went well. But you know, when things started to go hard, when difficult issues came up, they, they had troubles trusting one another because they hadn't built a trust based on a deep affection, a genuine relationship with one another. And so they judged one another on how they uh, responded to a particular conflict rather than on the character that they knew that they had because they built that kind of a relationship with them. You see, it's, it's too easy to throw stones at people when we haven't built genuine relationships with them. It's too easy to let their, their quirks and their differences and whatever they say that we don't uh, totally agree with to get under our skin. But it's totally different We've got a, that kind of affection. Then we say, oh, I know them. They're good guys. It's okay. And we can let it go. But then to, to affection, the Apostle Paul adds a second word. It's the word sympathy. And you know, sometimes you just don't like the people you go to church with. It's not that they're bad people. You just, for whatever reason, your personality clashes, or you just haven't had the chance to, to get to really know them very well. And, and, if that's, and, and when that's the case then it's important that we have sympathy for one another. Now, sympathy doesn't mean like, oh, I feel bad that you don't know a guy as great as me. That's not the sympathy Paul is talking about. Rather, sympathy means that you put yourself in that person's shoes, that you understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I, I remember one time, Newell and I, big fight. I mean, I said something, she said something, I said something, she said something, I said something. You know, if you're married, you, you know, this happens sometimes. But all of a sudden she said something and it's like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh, 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 I didn't understand that's where you were coming from. Oh, 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 I get it. If, if that's the case, no wonder you think I'm acting like an idiot. Even though I don't think I'm acting like an idiot. But, but I didn't understand that that was what's going on in your heart and that, that's where you were coming from. And you see, when I began to understand that, then I had sympathy for where she was coming from. 
And this is the case in the church too. Sometimes we clash over ideas or visions or some decision that was made. And what we need for one another, if we don't have affection for one another, is sympathy. We need to understand where that other person is coming from. Because very rarely, almost never, are they have a different perspective, a different point of view because of malice or evil. Like, <laughs> I'm going to do this just to wreck their life. It's not the case. You know, let me give you an example. One person insists that in COVID, everybody follows all the rules. They wear the mask. They keep the distance. They do all of those things. And the next person in the church is like, let's not be so uptight about it. Like, let's generally do it, but let's not, let's not, you know, get so uptight. And the problem is they can begin to judge that person who is, who is so letter of the law. And the problem is that if they don't have affection for them, then they need to have sympathy for them. In other words, they need to understand where they're coming from. They might not know that that person has, is seriously immunocompromised or someone that they love is or someone that they loved actually died of COVID. And so the reason they're keeping the rules is not because they're trying to be difficult, but because they want to protect others. By the same token, the, the, the person who is like, let's, let's get together as soon as we can. Let's, let's begin to, to meet together to understand that that person's, that's just their personality. They're not so uptight about this stuff as, uh, as other people are. And they're dying because they don't have the chance to be together with one another. It's sucking the life out of them. And neither one of them holds their position out of malice or ill intent. And if they had an affection for one another, they'd say, look, I disagree, but I totally know that guy. He's a good guy. It's okay. She's a great lady. It's no problem. But when we don't have that, then what Paul calls for us to have for one another is sympathy. To think, to understand, to grasp what it is that causes them to think that way. Because this is necessary for unity. And this, again, is the second point that the Apostle Paul makes here. Unity in the church flows from what I call emotional intelligence. I don't know if that's quite the right term, but, but, but it's this idea that we develop the skill to, to have these solid relationships with those that we have an affinity towards. We also develop the skill and the strength to appreciate, to understand where those who are different from us are coming from. And that's the second place that the unity needs to flow when we talk about those in the church that are very different from us. That's where Paul starts. But now, now Paul in these next verses is going to turn to those who are very similar to us. And he's going to help us understand how it is that we need to find and maintain unity with those who are so similar. Here's what he writes in verses 3 and 4. He says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says this, Do nothing from rivalry. Rivalry is defined this way, the competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. I was introduced to the concept of rivalry when I was a year and a half old. My parents came home from the hospital and they introduced me to something that they called a little brother. And there, and in that moment began a rivalry that lasted through most of my childhood. Because you see, my little brother could not understand that I was smarter, wiser, better looking, more understanding of what we should do, and that if he would just listen to what I said, that it would be better for him and probably for me too. In my mind, if he simply did what I told him to, it would be a win-win. The problem we had is that he had the same view, except for that he thought that I should listen to what he said and how he wanted to do it because he was wiser and smarter and better. 
What resulted was this rivalry all through our childhood. Rivalry really is all about power. It's all about who gets to make the decisions. But, but it's, it's more than that. It's about having power over those who are nearest to you. Someone that is most similar to you. You see, I never have felt a particular rivalry with Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Yeah, they're not quite in my league. Actually, yeah, you know what I'm saying. But they may have a rivalry with one another because they're kind of competing in the same way. But the rivalries in my world happen to be with those who are, who are similar with me. It's those who are, who are so much like me. And, and the problem is when we get older, the rivalry doesn't go away. Out of our teenage years, we just get more sophisticated and more subtle about it. And especially in the church where it is that we are expected to be nice about how we treat one another. But it's still a very real factor in the life of a church. There's still rivalries in the church around, around who gets to send the agenda. There are rivalries in churches around who gets their theological position be the one that's adopted by everyone else in the church. Rivalries around, uh, you know, which programs get the most profile on a Sunday morning and the most resources. And rivalries around who, who spends the money. That, that's rivalry. But then there's this whole area of conceit. And conceit is simply an excessive view of oneself. Uh, if rivalry is about power, conceit is all about image. It's about wanting to be seen as the most important and, and, and the most successful. And it comes from comparing yourself to the people around you. And then when you're seeing someone who's similar than, to you, kind of same stage of life, seeing, uh, beginning to have envy and jealousy and maybe anger and even malice towards that person. This happens for everyone. It happens certainly for pastors. I mean, pastors, we talk about rivalries, but really it's, it's this biblical idea of conceit. And we look and we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm more important, I'm more significant because I have a bigger church than you. And if we don't have a bigger church than the next guy, it's like, well, my church is more biblical than yours. Or my church is more relevant than yours. Because what we're trying to do is say, like, I'm more important. I, I, I have this value because I'm more than you. But it's not just pastors that have that problem. I mean, we all have that problem. We look at someone similar to us and say, well, their career looks like it's better than mine. Their marriage looks like they're happier than us. Their children seem like they're more well-adjusted. Their life looks easier than, than my life does. And, and we begin to dislike that person, not because of anything that they have done to us, but simply because in our minds, they're more successful and they're doing better than we are. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but have, have you ever seen something or heard of something bad happen to somebody that you kind of compare yourself to and secretly you're happy about it? Because, because you don't actually want something bad to happen to them, but in your level, in your internal level of who's where, and where you are on this scale, the fact that something bad drops them down and moves you up. You see, that's conceit. And it's deadly in a church. And Paul warns us that it will destroy the unity in a church. You see, rivalry and conceit at the very heart are really about self-idolatry. They flow from this idolatrous belief that I am do more than I've already received, and that I should be honored greater than I currently am being honored. And this really is the sin behind much of the other sin in our life. It is the origin of the original sin. I mean, this is the, the deal for Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, the serpent came to them, and what he offered them was that they would be exalted. That they would be exalted in their own eyes and in the eyes of God. That they would become like God, Right? And, and that's this whole idea that comes when we are involved in rivalry 
and conceit. It's a sense that I should be treated more like God. I should have the power and I should have the recognition that is due to me. And like all sin, not only does it destroy the unity within the church, but it brings destruction into our own lives, slowly but surely. You see, there's nothing wrong with working hard for success. That's not, that's not what Paul is saying here. You should work hard for success in your life, but not if you measure success based upon the losses of others. You see, rivalry and conceit becomes a zero-sum game. The only way that you win is when others lose. But you see, that becomes a treadmill that will wear your soul out. Because no matter how hard you try, I mean, you work like crazy so that you are, have more say, more power than the guy next to you, and that you have more honor than him. And as soon as you get there, you lift your eyes, you see there's someone that has more than you. And so you go on that treadmill again, and you push like crazy you, in rivalry until you have more power than them and more respect than them. And you keep on that treadmill until finally you bump against the ceiling. The skill set you've got, the gifts that God's given you, just don't allow you to go any higher. And when you get to that place, you, you, you look behind you and there's this trail of broken relationships and heartache along the way. And you look ahead and there's this brick wall. And what you end up with is this barren, hard, lonely place. And this is the third point that the Apostle Paul makes. And that's this, Unity in the church flows from crucifying our self-idolatry. Now, that's something that's brutally difficult for us to do. It just runs against our very sin nature. You know, we may not think that we're better than Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, but we surely think that we're better than the guy next to us and that we deserve more than the person down the row from us. And, and so we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to destroy these attitudes. And so the Apostle Paul gives us two tools which the Spirit will use to help put to death that self-idolatry in our life. And the first is found in the second part of verse 3. He says this, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, humility was not a thing in the ancient world. The Greeks didn't even have a word for humility. And the Romans thought the idea was abhorrent. I mean, they, they literally, in, that, in the ancient world, everyone strove for greatness and for honor. And in fact, the word for humility was coined, we think, by the, the early church. In fact, some would, some argue that it was actually Paul himself in this passage who first coined this word humility. And Paul says the way to destroy self-idolatry in our life, in the, the rivalry and conceit in our life, is to practice humility in two ways. First of all, it is to see others as being more significant than ourselves. And this is really a shift in our mindset. It's not a matter of thinking less of who we are, but rather thinking more of the people around us. You know, I was at a prayer meeting uh, earlier this week with a number of pastors in our, in our city. And, uh, you know, it was outside and we had social distance and mass. I mean, all the things that were there. Uh, but it was great. You got to know there's such great pastors in our community. And we gathered together for a couple hours to pray for one another to pray for you who are in our congregations, to pray for our city. And I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Uh, but you know, I sat in a circle with a couple of different pastors. And on my left was a guy who just retired from his church. And you know, if I were to compare myself to him, I, I, by, uh, I have the privilege here to serve in a church much larger than his church. And it would be easy for me to say, oh, look at that. I'm more significant. I have more value because I preach to the larger, more people than he did. 
But you know, when I look at his life, I mean, here's a man who spent 27 years and still is going strong, serving in this community, loving people, walking with people through the hard things in, your life, in their life, pointing them to Jesus. And it seems to me that on, on that day when we stand around the throne, he will be so much nearer to the center, to the throne room of God, than I ever will be because not he had a big church, but because of the way he so faithfully served Christ. And then on my right was a pastor who's brand new to our community from a totally different church tradition than ours. And when I heard where he's from, I said, oh, but you know what? How dare I? When he began to pray, I mean, his prayers were so laced with the scriptures, so rich in what he said and so meaningful. And God has put him in our city with responsibilities and significance in profound ways. And you know, to understand is such a good reminder that where God has put me is his grace, but I stand here not because I'm so great or so amazing, but because of God's good grace. And to see what those and so many others do is so much more significant in terms of of what they're doing. To begin to kill that self-idolatry in our lives means to broaden our metrics of how we measure significance and see it the way God sees significance in people's lives. And to see that God has given those around us so much significance in what he has called them to do. It's the first thing that he says. Then secondly, in verse 4, he goes on to say this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If counting others more significant than ourselves is a change in mindset, this is a practical outworking of that. You know, who is it in your world? Who is it in your world that you feel like you're in competition with? Who is it that you're comparing yourself with? You know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, you should not only look out for your interests, but their interests too. You should not only seek your success, but you should actively seek their success. You know that person that you feel like, ah, oh, they're getting ahead of me? You should start praying that God will pour his blessings on their life. You should champion them everywhere you go. You should speak of them well and say what good, you know, what good things is happening in their life. And if you get the chance, to practically help them move ahead and succeed. You should do that. You should take that opportunity to help them get ahead. And people say, what? No way. I mean, that just goes against everything that I feel like doing. It's so counter to the culture around us. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's what it's all about. You know, so often people think, oh, Christianity is boring and traditional and stale, but nothing could be further from the truth. To follow Jesus is subversive and disruptive and radically different. And what the Apostle Paul calls us to do here is to do that very thing. To, to seek to, to help those that we would normally be in competition. I mean, that, that's what it's all about. And when we do that, it sets us free. It sets us free from that thing which would burn us up inside because we're in competition with them. And it sets us free from the, the kind of things that would bring division among us, bring division into the church. And it sets us free to live in the place that God has called us to. Not always looking to the left or to the right, but rather saying, this is where God's called me to. And it's a good place. And so I'm going to walk and I'm going to live in it. And the secret thing here, and we're going to talk about it next week, is that there's great reward in doing this. Even though it is so different than what you would think. This is the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. And as we'll see, as we pick up where where we leave off here this week, when we walk this way, when we live this way, then God honors us in ways that we would never imagine. The call for us is to walk in unity so that we bring honor to Christ in all that we do. Would you bow your heads? 
Let's pray. God, thank you for your word again. It's so practical that that meets us where we're at and calls us, God, to live differently. And God, I pray that we would be a people in this church, in Ridge Church, God, who live in unity with one another. God, I pray that you would help us to to remember the the fact that it's because of what you've done in our life. That there is this this unity among us. And that out of that, God, God, you're helping us to walk together. And so we just give ourselves to you again this day. We pray that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.